in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We are in the middle of a Jesus Among the World Religions series. So we started a few weeks ago talking about Hinduism. uh, And then uh, a week or two weeks ago, we talked about Buddhism. Uh, And so we're kind of roughly going in chronological order. Uh, Not not exactly, but more or less uh, in chronological order. So Hinduism and Buddhism both predate Christ. Hinduism is arguably one of the oldest religions in the world. Uh, And Judaism as well is one of the oldest world faiths. Now, today we're going to be talking about Judaism, which is a bit strange to do uh, because for a pastor, I spend more time in the Old Testament probably than any pastor you've ever met or will ever meet for the rest of your life. Uh, Most evangelical churches will spend about 10%, 15% of their time in the Old Testament. And we have spent 50 or possibly 55% of our sermons in the Old Testament. If you think about all the longest sermon series we've done on uh, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Joseph, a lot of those went from 8 to 10 to 12 weeks plus, and they were all Old Testament series. I think the only long series we've done in the New Testament has been from the book of Hebrews. Uh, So these last weeks have been almost entirely new, and that's fun. It's fun to teach people things that are entirely new. But today we're talking about Judaism, which as Christianity grows out of Judaism, but won't exactly be uh, as new or as much of a surprise. And some of you who've been here for four years will have heard uh, some of this before. So I wanted to give if possible, a 30,000-foot view of Judaism. Because I think in our society, it's really easy to sort of poke through the scriptures, or maybe if you've ever had this practice of reading a chapter or two a day, that's a great way to learn the scriptures better. But it really gets you down into like a granular level, and it's hard to see the larger narrative. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked yourself from scripture, what was the reason for the Jewish people? Why did God call Abraham out of what is now Iraq? He was from a city called Ur, U-R, which literally just means city, uh, but there was a specific city called City in southern Iraq, close to where modern Baghdad is. Uh, So why did he call Abraham out of Iraq, and what was the reason for his descendants to, to be and to carry this baton? What was the reason for the Jews? It's easy to take it for granted that he called Abraham and his descendants because that's just sort of how it was, and we kind of learn the story, and we move on. It's a story. Now, let me uh, jump, on, you know, jump into my creative writing hat. So if you've ever taken any sort of writing course or like a film course, any sort of creative storytelling course of some kind, uh, maybe playwriting, uh, you know that the building blocks of a story often have similar elements to them. Now, there are all sorts of exceptions to this, but oftentimes you will have a protagonist, a main character, and you need them to have some kind of a goal, right? Some sort of an ever-fixed mark that they're always wanting to march toward. Uh, And that can be as complex as like seeking vengeance, or it can just be like, hey, I just want to be comfortable and stay alive. But you have to have a character with a goal. Uh, And then you don't really have a story, though, if you have that. Uh, You need some sort of a complication or a hurdle. You need some sort of difficulty, a block that gets in their way. And then that tailspin of that problem, the character trying to, you know, get to their goal, but then having to deal with all these problems along the way, that's often how you get to a story. Not always, but a lot of the stories that you can name start like that. So you think, you know, the children enter the wardrobe. Uh, Alice descends into the rabbit hole. 
Luke receives Leia's holographic message, right? You have these people who all of a sudden there's this inciting incident. Something happens and you can't come back from it, right? You have to move forward in the story. You can't just go back from this. Uh, so yeah, Luke receives Leia's message. Uh, Harry gets this letter telling him he's a wizard and he's invited to this school, right? And you, you just can't come back from this, uh, these sorts of inciting incidents. Uh, and then uh, the last one here, that I can think of is that Bilbo is giving a speech and halfway through he disappears. <laughs> Those are inciting incidences and you can't really come back from them. Have you ever wondered what is the inciting incident in this story of the Jews? What is the inciting incident in scripture? And the answer is that it's the serpent in the garden. The inciting incident in scripture is the fall. So our earliest ancestors were in communion with God face to face they were in this sacred space where they were present with God in a kind of paradise on earth. And then through turning our backs on God, we lost this presence. We lost this sacred space, this face-to-face communion with God. And this sets everything else in motion for the rest of Scripture. And there's really no going back from it. You can only go forward, but you can't go back from that point. And we spend the rest of the pages of the Old Testament seeking to find our way, to dig our way out of that. So a fallen world is a hard place, and then, but from that hard world, God sets a plan of redemption in place. So you can, uh, track with me here, you can plot the different religions of the world as a kind of crude graph, a kind of plot line of humanity. And it tells you a lot about who God is and who people are according to different religions of the world. So when you say, what is the ultimate goal? What is the trajectory of humanity in Hinduism? It looks like this. <laughs> it's just a circle, right? Same with Buddhism. That's what a graph would look like as to the role of humans before God or before uh, some sort of higher power in Buddhism and Hinduism. In Islam, it looks like a lightning bolt that goes sideways across the page. So it starts here and then falls and then and just keeps going like this because what happens is you have a prophet come who are all giving apparently the same message that Muhammad claimed to have given. This is what Islam says, and we'll get to this in a few weeks that a prophet comes and shares the truth and everyone then is sort of there and more righteous. And then they slowly backslide and fall away and then God sends another prophet and then another one, right? So you get this sort of lightning bolt across the page. But Judaism and then Christianity as well starts here in a garden and then you have this huge crash. So if you can imagine this on a plot, on a, on a graph, you start here and then a huge crash. And then in Judaism, you start to move up from the bottom. But Judaism stops. It's the only religion in the world that stops halfway through. There is no finish point to the graph, uh, and we'll get to this more uh, as we keep going on in this sermon. So God sets up a plan in motion after the fall. He calls Abram, who was not from Canaan. He was not from what would become the, poly, the, the promised land. He was from Iraq, and he actually had multiple gods, believe it or not. So Yahweh called him, and he listened, but it was probably some time before he dropped the other gods, which sort of shakes us to imagine this, that God is calling someone out from the nations who's a polytheist, and it took some time probably for him to become a monotheist. So he didn't take a Jew because there weren't Jews yet. The Jews were the ones who came from Abraham. He was just a guy named Abram from Iraq. And God called him to go to what we know would eventually become the promised land and not to stay and rule over what would be Babylon or Assyria or Egypt or any of these powerful nations, Instead, he was to go to this herding area uh, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean and not on the fertile coastland where he could be in conversation with all of the other great empires of the day. No, like 100 miles in, in the hills, kind of in the middle of nowhere. 
So this is for some reason where God called Abram. It says in Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That last one's big and you may have heard me mention this before. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, God then later says, uh, he brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. So someday you will have as many offspring as the stars in the sky. And then again, he says, he just says this over and over. Now this is Genesis 22. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this is the beginning of the people of Abraham and it's the beginning of what Judaism would become. So all of Islam and Judaism and Christianity, we all trace our lineage back to this moment and back to Abraham. That's why they call us three, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are called the Abrahamic faiths. We share a lot and that we all go back to the same promise. More than half the world today call Abraham their grandfather in the faith. Uh, surprisingly, though, there are not many Jews in the world today. Uh, they have, uh, they've been an extremely influential people like the no number of like Nobel Prizes that they win per capita is just insane. They're an incredible, gritty, intelligent people who have made a big difference on this earth, but there's not many of them. There's actually a lot fewer of them today than there were even in the Roman Empire. During the Roman Empire, about one in every five people in the Roman Empire was a Jew. They had about 60 million Jews back then, whereas today there's only 14 million. Um, so before the Holocaust, there were... 16, I think it was 16 million Jews before the Holocaust, and today there's only 14 because they've never quite recouped those numbers. So there's not many Jews in the world. That's like the New York City, that's less than the New York City metro area is how many Jews there are total uh, in the entire world. But between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, uh, more than half the world comes from Abraham. So um, there's this prophecy given to Abraham that your descendants will multiply and they will be as numerous as the stars. And that largely uh, came true. A day was coming when uh, all the earth, though, including Abraham's homeland, but every, everywhere else as well, would be blessed by his offspring. And this is something that we miss and that the Jews missed, is that a lot of this promise was that not just you and your descendants, Abram, will be blessed, but the whole earth, all the nations of the earth, all of the foreign places as well, will be blessed by his offspring. So you have this fall, right? And then you have this great plan of redemption that starts with Abraham. And this was Judaism's calling, was to carry this plan, this baton of redemption. So sometimes people get the sense that Judaism is one thing, and that it's really all about the blood descendants of Abraham, specifically the ones through Isaac and not Ishmael. But no, right from the beginning, the promise given to Abram was that there was this curse, this fall, but it was going to be answered someday through one of Abraham's line, through a Jew, and that through this person, through this seed, this offspring of Abraham, redemption would come to the entire earth. It would come through his line. So that meant that Abraham's descendants had a mission. They had a baton to carry, and it was very clear from the beginning that they wouldn't carry it forever, right? The Jews were this people who was carrying this baton, but someday there would be this great transfer, this baton switch that happens when now all of the nations of the earth would be blessed and not just Abraham and his people. So 
That's the prophecy, right? That they would bring this blessing. But it gets a bit murky because if you zoom out, you do get this graph, right? Of this slow redemption story after the fall. But if you zoom in to the year-by-year, day-by-day story of the Jews, it looks more like a stock ticker, right? If you ever zoom in on like a stock symbol, it's just like, it's like those lightning bolts going all over the place. Uh, so Abraham's great-grandsons gang up on one of their brothers, as you know the story, selling him to slavery in Egypt. But in a crazy turn, this Joseph rises to one of the highest posts in Egypt. And during a great famine, instead of all of Abraham's descendants starving to death, they are saved by the very brother that they had sold into slavery. God works in mysterious ways, and we keep seeing this over and over in the Old Testament. He works in mysterious ways, and he keeps increasing and blessing these people who descend from Abraham. And by now, they are called Hebrews. The word Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word ivri, which comes from the, the verb avard. And it just means, you know, you have these little mnemonics for uh, memorizing words in new languages. It was always easy because avard means over. It was always easy to remember uh, that you know, normally there's not a correspondence like that. But the word Hebrew comes from ivri, which means the people from over there. They're people from across the river. They're not people who belong here. They're people from across the Euphrates who were taken out of Iraq and brought here. And that's the name that God and the Hebrews themselves use for themselves. It's a constant reminder that they are not from here. It's sort of, if you think of being in the promised land, we are the people from over there. We're not the people who are from here. We are from beyond the river. Their very name is a reminder of that impermanence, that they're not here, even though they are promised a land. They're given this purpose, that someday these people from over there will bless all nations and not just themselves. And it's what they forgot to do, and this is something uh, talked about within Judaism as well, uh, and it's largely the reason that Christianity uh, came, in a sense, to answer that challenge uh, and the way that Christianity found a place. Uh, So when the Jews first go to Egypt, it's a blessing. We forget that because it ended in slavery. But at first, they multiply like crazy, uh, and they, they do so well as a people that they end up becoming a threat to Egypt because they grow so numerous. And so over 400-some years, uh, they end up being enslaved, and then God sends Moses to rescue them. Now, you guys might might remember from our Moses series, we don't actually know what Moses' likely uh, Hebrew name was. He goes by the name of Moses. This is a long story. You can listen to the sermon to hear this. Uh, The Hebrew Bible gives a bit of a folk etymology as to his name. It's Moshech, and they say it's because he was drawn out of the water. Uh, But the actual grammar and the verbiage there doesn't really work. But what's really likely, and what a lot of Old Testament scholars think, is that he was was adopted by the Egyptian princess and given a good Egyptian royal name, which was Meshesh. Not Meshech, but Meshesh. Specifically, Ra Meshesh, which we would pronounce as Ramses. Now, not the real, not like the Ramses. You've heard of like King Ramses and his royal whatever. But he was just given a good Egyptian name because he was raised by an Egyptian princess. He was given a good Egyptian name that was likely Ramses. But then he dropped the Ra because it's an Egyptian pagan sun god and just went by Meshesh, which means child of. So God had taken the Hebrews from the nations. He had called them the people that are essentially not belonging, right? They're the people from over there. And then he brought them to another nation grew them among Egypt, but delivered them by a hero that likely had the name of a pagan god. God had not forgotten about the nations, and he had not forgotten what his plan was. 
The Jews were from the nations. They were not a people until God called them out of the nations to set them apart and then go back to bring blessing to the nations. So this exodus, this calling them out of slavery is the single most important act in the collective history of Israel when he saved them. And when the New Testament talks about Jesus saving us, when it talks about salvation, it is almost always using Exodus-like language. It's clearly leaning on the Exodus when it talks about salvation from sin. So the redemptive act of saving Israel from Egypt is the picture of God saving us from sin now in the New Testament. So do you notice what's missing from all of this story so far? What's missing is the law. We are made by God to be in relationship with him. And then we screwed it up. God begins a plan of redemption for the whole world through Abraham's line. He gives him all the promises that one day the whole earth will call his people blessed and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And then he saves the Hebrews and there is still no law. There's still no law, not yet. So when people say things like, the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament is all grace. Don't believe it. When people say the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament is all grace, don't believe it. The Jews were saved by grace before there ever was the law, right? They were, and I'm not talking about salvation in a heavenly sense. They were literally liberated from Egypt, from slavery, which is where we get our language for salvation from. They were saved out of Egypt by grace, by election, you could say. God chose to save them and liberate them from slavery in Egypt, which is what he said he would do through Moses. They were saved by grace in a way through faith because they believed that Moses, they didn't believe very well at times, but they believed that Moses would do what he said he would do. So in the Old Testament, they were saved by grace from slavery through faith that Moses would do what he said he would do. That's not language you often hear from the Old Testament, to be saved by grace through faith. But there is a lot less new in the New Testament than you think. The New Testament is christening. It is sort of inaugurating the ideas of the Old Testament. It is not necessarily introducing these entirely new paradigms. People act like sometimes, well, there was Judaism and there was the law, and then Jesus came in and like just changed the game. He did not change the game. He fulfilled it. It was all there. Israel had been saved by grace through faith. They were elected and chosen by God to be this people. Jesus, in a sense, then doesn't change the game. He just takes what was already there and brings it to the rest of the nations. Okay, so once he had made them a people, once he pulls them out of Egypt, that's finally when the law comes in. He takes them out into the desert on their way, and then after all the promises, after all the grace and saving through faith, then, then comes the law. And it's given primarily for one reason. Think on that for a second. What's the reason? You don't have to answer. What's the reason he gives the law? He already had the covenant promises. He already had the purpose. He already had sent them on their mission. Why the law? The reason he gives them the law is that if they are going to be Yahweh's baton carriers, his people, then they are not going to be like everybody else. They are going to be holy they're going to be set apart, or at least they should be. They're going to be righteous. They're going to need kind of a, a guidance, a code. And so the law was given not as a way to earn God's favor, and none of them thought it was. They already had God's favor. They were elected out of slavery. They were chosen. The law was given as a way to sort of stay in God's relationship. It wasn't how they were saved or how they were chosen or brought out of Egypt. 
It was the covenant that they made after the fact with God to stay in his relationship. And it was a beautiful thing. Sure, there's some weird and strange stuff that as modern people, when you look back, you don't quite understand everything that's there, but there is really a ton of beauty in the law. And unlike all of their neighbors, Israel's law upheld the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. It upheld the refugee and the migrant worker. Israel was supposed to be, and it's right there in the law, it was supposed to be a light to the less fortunate. They were to be a beacon to the poor. They were not, I don't know if you know this, they were not allowed to charge interest on loans for the poor. Our entire ecosystem is based on charging interest and especially interest on the poor. You know, if you buy a $300,000 home today and you are pretty well off with good credit, you will spend about fifty to 100000 less on that house over 30 years than a poor person with bad credit will over the same amount of time. Our entire system is built off charging more from the poor. If you've ever gone on a plane flight or a vacation for free or less money than you would have paid because of your credit card points, guess who paid for that? It was the poor because the people who are well off are paying their bills on time and not ever getting charged interest, right? It's the people who are saddled with debt and can't pay their credit card payments who are overpaying every month. That, that money is going in to then allow people who are sort of better off to get those points and to get those free things. Our entire system is built on overcharging the poor. The Jewish law has it the reverse. Not only that, they had something called Jubilee, that every 49 or 50 years, this is somewhat debated, but 49 or 50 years as to how many years it is, uh, all debts were wiped out every 49 or 50 years. Can you imagine if you took out a mortgage and then the Jubilee came up eight years later and the house was just yours? That's how the Jewish system was, or rather, it was how it was meant to be. If you were an indentured servant and you hired your way from one country into Israel, you could give up, say, seven years of your life as a servant. But if the Jubilee came when you were three years in or two years in, you were just scot-free. And now you belonged there even though you hadn't fulfilled your term. That's how it was supposed to be. But we don't have much evidence that this actually happened much. They were to be a light. They were to be a beacon. And at times they did well, but at most times they failed. So the graph of redemption, right? You start with this fall and the graph of redemption starts to come up and then it sort of stalls. It, it fails out. And they have great leaders along the way and they have a lot of bad leaders as well. But some of their good leaders, mostly good, they have leaders like David. But of course, as good as he was, he was also flawed. And if he was a modern Christian leader in the church, he would be defrocked many times over and not be allowed to be in the pulpit anymore. But God says to David at the end of David's life, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, it's just a euphemism for dying, uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, listen to this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Not long after David, the nation of Israel would be conquered and scattered in exile. They returned to their promised land, but never quite to their original strength or glory. And so they must have been asking, was the promise void? Was the mission failed? But they remembered the promise to David that this anointed one was coming from the line of David. And the word for anointed is Mashiach. This Messiah is coming, this anointed one in the line of David. And unlike the first two temples 
the temple that this anointed one brings will never be destroyed. His church, his throne, his kingdom will never end. And so the law was this special mark that was meant to designate the Jewish people as holy. But by Jesus's day, unfortunately, it had come to designate exactly the opposite. Long before Jesus, the Jewish people had seemed to sort of forget about the reason they were called, right? Which is to bring blessing ultimately to the nations, to reverse the curse and bring blessing to all the nations, to serve the weak, to serve the poor, that one day the whole world would be blessed through the Jews. And instead, the law became a kind of badge, a reason for believing that they were superior to the ones around them. And that's why once you get to the New Testament, you see many of the religious leaders of that day not associating with Gentiles at all and calling them dogs and sinners. They longed for a promised one, this anointed Mashiach, this Messiah from David's line, but their view of the coming Messiah was not as a suffering servant who would come to fulfill both the promises to David and Abraham and to bring salvation to all the families of the earth. They awaited a new warrior king, a general who, like David, would bring them military glory by conquering land. They failed to be a light to the nations that they were called to be. And just to be clear, I don't want this to sound anti-Semitic at all, uh, any non-Jewish people also would have failed at this task because it was a very high calling. They failed at it just like any non-Jewish people would have failed at it. So the graph of Judaism then is the only graph that's incomplete. And they recognize this too, right? That their graph, you know, they fall to the bottom here. And as they move up toward redemption, they just get sort of cut off on their way. And they recognize that their graph is incomplete. And that's why millions of Jewish people in the beginning of the church became Christians. You don't often hear that. You often just hear about the ones who rejected it. Millions of Jews became followers of Christ, but sadly, even more did not because they were awaiting a certain kind of Messiah and Jesus was not him. And because they're aware that that graph isn't finished yet, that they haven't finished the trajectory, they await still. So many of the Jews of today, 2,000 years later, are still awaiting a Messiah from the line of David who will come to do something. Uh, and they've sort of thrown up their hands like, I don't know what, but we're still waiting. Their graph is not finished. After the fall, the path to redemption was begun by this amazing people, but the line then stops. And that's where Jesus comes in. He says, here, let me finish the graph. Let me take the marker and finish this graph. So because of our sin, we had lost that sacred space. We had lost face-to-face -face contact with God so that when Moses went up on Sinai and received the law, when he came back down, he had to wear a veil because just the secondary glow from having been close to God was so great that it would kill people if they saw him, right? The glow off of Moses' face was so great that people would just fall dead if they saw him. So they had to look at him through a veil. Humans used to have direct contact with God and now they'll die if they even look at someone who saw him, right? That's what happened with this chasm of sin. God knew, though, that we could never get there, right? We could never achieve it on our own. The Jews couldn't do it, and neither could any other people, but God could. And this is where Christianity grows out of Judaism. This is where Christ meets Judaism, where he meets his people and finishes the graph, because God himself sends himself, his son, his word, his own, uh, his own self, and he takes on human flesh, and he, too, faces the serpent. He faces this unscalable wall of sin and death, and he goes under its blade, and he dies under its punishment. But it's a trick, like any good trickster story. 
by dying under sin and death, he steals its weapon. He dies under sin and death, and he takes its best weapon. And then he uses that very weapon against sin and death itself. God told Eve that there would always be enmity between her seed, her offspring, and the serpent, but that one day there would be a son, there would be a seed, and that the serpent would strike his heel. This is in Genesis 3. A lot of people call it the first prophecy in the Old Testament. One day, God says, the serpent would strike this son, would strike his heel, but he would crush its head. Someday Eve will have a son, a descendant, and the serpent will strike its heel, but he will crush his head. The serpent did not want the curse to be reversed, didn't want the blessing, this baton, to be carried to the end where the blessing would go out to all the nations of the earth. So this serpent tried to kill this Jesus, this Messiah, this anointed one who's the branch who comes out of David's line. So he strikes at Jesus' heel by pounding a nail through his hands and his feet. He literally strikes at Jesus' heel by pounding a nail through his feet. I mean, it doesn't get more clear than this, right? Like someday the serpent will strike again and will strike at his heel. That's exactly what he does to Jesus. He pounds a nail through his feet. But Jesus used that weapon of the cross against the serpent. Jesus says, let me finish the graph. Redemption and reconciliation for all peoples and all nations are not, is now here. The promises, the very reason God called Israel even though they had failed, now that is fulfilled in Jesus. And the light has gone out to the world. The blessing, this beacon, is now sounding forth from Zion. The serpent struck at his heel, but Jesus crushed his head. And that is the story, in a very small nutshell, that is the story of Judaism and how Jesus completes the unfinished graft of the Jewish faith and how he finishes what Judaism was meant to complete long before the law ever was invented. Uh, let me pray to close us, and I invite you guys to join us downstairs for refreshments and coffee afterward. Father, we thank you for uh, your people, for calling Abraham out of Iraq and for giving him this wonderful uh, lineage of some of the most blessed people who've ever been on this earth. And we thank you for giving them this calling to bring this beacon of light to all the nations of which I am part and probably 99% of the people here. We probably have no Jewish blood but we are people from the nations, and we thank you that you have brought your light to the nations through this people, and that when they failed, you came in and did it yourself. You became Israel. You became flesh in order to do this for us. We thank you for facing the serpent, for facing that unscalable wall of sin and death, for dying under the serpent's best weapon, but by uh, <laughs> a kind of trickery, taking his weapon and defeating him with the very sin and death that he wielded against you. And we thank you that because you died and because you rose again, that you have conquered sin and death and that we can come under your grace and under your power and also be redeemed from sin and death and live with you forever. We thank you for finishing that graph, for bringing the light to all the nations that we all might be restored to you in a face-to-face -face relationship, not looking through a veil, but face-to-face -face in the Son of God in human flesh that we can look at you and see you and talk to you. We thank you, Father, uh, and lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church, STP, or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.